Good morning. How are you? Awesome. Good. Uh, my name's Rick. For those of you that do not know, I'm the director of worship and students here at CC. Um, and today, if you're new with us or if you're just catching up with us, we're finishing a series that we began three months ago called Prophet and Gospel, where we take each week uh, a so-called minor prophet. And then we begin to look at not only what does the word of God say in that prophet, but we begin to look at where is gospel language in there. These, these prophets are not minor because they're like less important. They're not minor because um, that what they have to say is just not as good. They're, they, there's a few reasons why they're minor. Maybe because they are limited in scope uh, in, in, in terms of their, their dates, in terms of the content, but it's still prophecy from God. So just by way of recap, if you guys are just joining us today, uh, a prophet we've defined as as a man called out by God to speak the words of God on behalf of God. So he speaks God's words, he speaks God's truth, and the reason that God gifts us with these prophets is because we are finite. We are finite and we are ignorant, ignorant of truth. We no longer know how to hear and receive truth. So what does God do? He gifts us with these prophets uh, so that we might hear and be able to discern truth again. He gifts us with prophets as a means of the infinite God speaking to these finite minds. And of course, gospel, we have defined, and most of us know, means good news. It's good news, number one, that God would actually, this infinite God would actually open his mouth and he's actually going to talk to us, right? He's actually going to speak. And it's good news that the thing he speaks is that we are forgiven of our sin because he atoned for us. So that's where we are and where we come from this and the kind of the guardrails we, we put on this um, when we began working on this is that where do we find, why are we always looking for gospel language every, anywhere we go in the Bible? And it's because we believe that all of the law and the prophets, scripture is very, very clear about this. All of the law and the prophets are really point to him. They find their culmination. They find their fulfillment in him, right? Um, excuse me. And then in Hebrews 1, we're actually going to be there a little bit today. Scripture tells us very explicitly that long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he speaks to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So what you guys have seen, those of you that have been with us, is that in these prophets, it's really hard to see the gospel sometimes. Because you open the book and he's like, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to whatever, right? And so it's really hard sometimes to see, well, where's the good news in any of that? God continuously uses high-intensity language to communicate not only the sin But he communicates how he feels about uh, his holiness, how he intends to rescue and save and judge rightly. And then the second thing, and you're going to see this today, we're going to be, if you're new, um, we have Bibles for you uh, in the black hardback Bibles in the seat in front of you. You can grab that. We're going to be in the book of Zechariah. Um, Often this prophet, and a lot of them do this, but a lot of them 
move on from the, 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 the judgment, the charge, right to salvation. He's like, I'm going to destroy you and I'm going to save you. And it's right there. And there's no reason. There's no idea why he does that. Um, and so we were able to see that. You're going to see that a little bit today. So today, we're going to finish this thing. Y'all ready to finish this thing? Y'all, yeah, I, I, I've heard some of your comments like, thank God. It's over. We did it, Sam. We did it, Samwise Gamgee. We got there. Zechariah chapter 1. This is where we're going to be. This is, I'm going to introduce you to Zechariah. He prophesied around the same time as Haggai. Uh, he's not only a prophet. He, scripture tells us he's a priest as well. He's a prophet priest. He, we know he's a young guy. And God's word comes to him uh, for, his, for God's people. Uh, they, after they have been delivered out of exile by the Persian king Cyrus, right? And so in October of 520 BC, God begins to give Zechariah, this prophet priest, this young prophet priest, begins to speak to him. And then by February of the next year, uh, 519 BC, he begins to give him visions. So the way the book is essentially structured out is you have this series of eight visions with a culminating crowning event. And then you're going to get four sermons. And then you're going to get two future oracles on here. All right. Es- these eschatological. It's a kind of a question that we all have. How does this thing end? Right. So let's read real quick. If you are in Zechariah, we're starting chapter one, verse one. We're going to go one through six. And very quickly, I just want to set up what is the situation here, okay? So it says in one one, read with me, it says, In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out, thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts has purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. So here's the situation. They are, these people of God are some 16 years uh, out of exile. They are in poverty. There's a feeling of rejection, right? Because they come out and they're like, okay, we're free, we're free. But there's no, like, glorious golden light descending. Like, where's the, where's the savior of all this? And now we're glorified. Where, where, where is this picture? You're free physically, but you're not free. You're not free, right? They're in poverty. They feel rejected. Um, there's no glorious messianic savior that's just appeared out of the sky. And after a while of living in a season of crisis, and now they're free, but living in poverty and rejection, they begin to tell themselves, this is the new normal. Have you ever been in a moment of your life or a season of your life or years of your life where you begin to tell yourself, 
this crisis, this season is the new normal. And you just have to deal with it. And the second problem they have, because he does, he's very clear, he says there's sin there um, among the people. But the second thing he points out, and, and actually I think Dave Job pointed this out in uh, Haggai. Um, somebody pointed it out somewhere, okay? It's been a long time, okay? We all know this together, right? Uh, he, he points out the leaders. Uh, he, he always, he ends up calling out the leaders. It's not just the people, it's the people that they go to. And in chapter 10, uh, he's talking about restoration, uh, in, in Zechariah 10. He says, you know, the household of gods is utter nonsense. Diviners see lies, it's false dreams and give empty consolation. And therefore people wander like sheep. They're afflicted for lack of a shepherd. And he says this about leaders. He says, my anger is hot against the shepherds. And I will punish the leaders for the Lord of hosts cares for his flock in the house of Judah. It's rain imagery, right? God's people are looking for leaders for this hope and for provision. And these leaders give manufactured, concocted, false hope that doesn't come from seeking the face of the Lord. It just comes from, it's, it's what he calls in 10.3, empty consolation. So they resign themselves. The people resign themselves. This is God's judgment on. This is just God judging me. This is what we deserve. They may be out of exile and they may be out of slavery, but they are still suffering for want of the presence of God. And this is the new normal. We're filthy, we are dirty, and this is just what we get. This is what we deserve. This is the new normal. And I love it. If you look back in 1, one Zechariah 1, 1 and 2, God does, actually doesn't spend out time. Like in other books we've studied, God doesn't spend time listing out charges like right away. He literally says this. He says, look, at, look in verse 1 and 2. He says, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. That's it. Right? It's a you know what you did, A.A. Ron. You done know. We're already acquainted. We know it's idolatry. We know their sexual immorality. We know they're prostituting themselves out. And God doesn't waste time listing out all the little charges that we've read throughout the prophets. God gets right to the point. One, three. Therefore, since we know all this already, one, three, return to me and I will return to you. And this isn't works-based transactional statement. Like God's only going to work if you work. God has already returned to us. People think he's speaking to them. He's already returned just by opening his mouth and talking to them. Right? He's imparting truth to them. Prophet. God is speaking covenantal, redemptive, restorative gospel language to highlight the nature of this relationship. They tell themselves, this is just the new normal. And we got to live in it. Flying off a false hope. And and God comes in with his word and says, I'm going to show you a new normal. So of all these visions, there's a lot of eschatological, apocalyptic uh, type. I'm not, it's not direct, but it's, it's a type uh, in the visions that we have. But I want to focus just on one today. I just want to focus on one. If you go with me to Zechariah chapter 3, we get a vision of Joshua the high priest. So Joshua and other Old Testament texts is, uh, is the, one of the principal drivers of this rebuilding the temple, which we saw in Haggai, right? 
we saw this like rebuilding the temple. And where Haggai speaks of the initiative to rebuild the temple, what Zechariah is about to do is about to show us the building of a temple that, that can't be built by human hands with human effort. So let's read Zechariah 3. I'm just going to read all of 3 real quick together, okay? Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. This heavenly picture here, right? Verse 2, And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and you will clothe yourselves with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So, that they, so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declared the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under the vine, to come under the fig tree. You catch what happened right there? The reinstatement of Joshua the high priest. This is why it matters, okay? This is what this vision uh, is doing. We're only going to focus on a couple of things because, I mean, whole books have been written just on this, this moment, this thing, this, uh, this vision. He says, you're to walk in my ways and keep my charge in verse 7. If he can do that, what does he say? You shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. What, does he do? what happens in verse 7? He's given the right of access into the most holy place. This is, a, this is a people who feel so dirty and filthy. And we're going to see this thing again. I don't want to get ahead of myself. So real quick, I want to show you this. We're looking here at the institution of a, of a priest. So what is a priest? A priest is a man chosen from among men. He's appointed. He represents us before God to do what? Offers gifts and sacrifices, atoning for sin. He goes in year after year after year, and it is a bloody, bloody affair to get people right with God again. And he represents Joshua. What Joshua is supposed to be doing here is representing men in the fullest sense. If you look at back at verse three, 2, chapter 3, verse 2, he says he's a brand plucked from the fire. God's pulling his people out, right? They're meant for destruction, but you're pulled out. And then Joshua, it says in verse 3, look at it. He says he's clothed with filthy garments. Dude, he's representing the people of God, right? They're filthy. They're rejected. And then you go verse 4. What happens? God removes the filth. I've taken your iniquity away from you. I will clothe you with pure vestments. He represents us. And then here's the second thing he does. 
Joshua pre he's he's what we would say is he's prefiguring Christ. He's foreshadowing, he is typifying the one who is to come. Joshua's made high priest. He's able to go into the most holy place before God, right? And then he says in verse 8, look at verse 8. He says, I will bring my servant, the branch, who will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Who does that sound like? That's your easy church answer. Jesus. We are moving away now from prophet and gospel to priest and gospel. Turn with me, and this is where we're going to finish this, together in the book of Hebrews. We're going to end like we began. Chapter 1. Bring my servant the branch. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And get this, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Did you catch this? Where prophets speak on behalf of God, Jesus speaks as God where priests act on our behalf, making perfect, representing us to God. Jesus perfectly and for all time represents us as our federal head to God. Remember, he's he's a priest. He's chosen from among men, right? He represents us to God. He offers gifts and sacrifices. He makes atonement for sin. They're supposed to, priests are supposed to to perfectly represent us, to bear sin in perfect sacrifice, to go into the presence of a holy God. And here, here he is making purification. The sitting down is crucial. It's crucial to understanding that it is finished. It's a finished work. He's not just, it's not just priest standing daily, ready to offer sight. It's, it is finished. He sits down. It is gospel. It is good news. So the gospel is not our trying to see the best in people and situations. The gospel enables us to acknowledge the absolute worst about ourselves and plead the covering of the blood of Jesus Christ. The gospel is that we can come and stand before the Lord filthy, watch him clothe us in absolute Rightness. He makes us clean. He fulfills, and this Jesus fulfills this priest role, but in a greater way than they could have. They offer sacrifices every year. He does it once for all. It's constant ritual before, and now it's one final act. It was a, it, before it was this atonement that doesn't save us. 
He gives us an atonement that finally saves. Priests stand at the ready and he sits down. And this branch imagery, this branch imagery we just read about, um, Christ is this branch. And you see it in Isaiah. You see it, you see it in a few places, uh, this branch imagery. Christ is this branch, and this is crucial here, that cannot be cut off anymore. His sitting down means he is the branch that cannot be cut off. If you remember in the Old Testament that, that not all Israel is Israel, right? Some people, it's like, well, you're there because of ethnicity, because of race, because of this, and then as you begin to see the New Testament come in, you start realizing, like, all Israel is not Israel. People get cut off. Under the old covenant, God chooses Israel. Romans 9, 6, not all Israel is Israel. God's election is beyond ethnic, racial, and national lines. And God's saving of his people is not because they're the faithful remnant. They come out of exile and they're just like, we're filthy. We're still filthy. We're not in slavery anymore. No, at least not physically. John Frame, I love how he writes it. And some of you can disagree with me and that's cool. Uh, the election of Israel is ultimately the election of Jesus Christ as the faithful remnant. Christ himself can never, since the cross, lose his fellowship with the Father. So those who are in Christ belong to him inwardly and who belong to him inwardly and not merely outwardly, who are the true Israel can never lose their salvation. They are the elect in a stronger sense than the nation of Israel. You catch this? So, so the one God chooses, the one that God chooses is ultimately Christ. It's why we have to be in him. It's why we must be found in him. It's why we must go through Jesus if we're to be saved. He must mediate for us. He must be because he's the one that cannot be cut off. And so before we go on to the last part of this, you got to understand, like to be in Christ, to literally be in him is to be in the one who cannot be cut off from God. And so I would say we cannot lose our salvation. Because to be chosen in the first place means that we are found to be in the one who cannot be cut off. Colossians 1, 15 through 17 says that Christ is before the foundation of the world, right? And Ephesians 1, 4 says that we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Christ sitting down is crucial. It's finished. This priest is done. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool at his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We are chosen in him. Christ is this one who's mediating there's this old covenant, but he is the one who must mediate. He mediates the new covenant, the new normal. And so we started in Hebrews, but as you go on in Hebrews, he then goes on to explain who this Christ is. And he gives us three warning processes. So what do we do with all that? Like, what do we do with 
him being, yes, he's priest. Yes, he makes atonement for our sin. If that's not like awesome enough, but what do we need to do here? What's the ethic? What is the, um, the thing? What, like, where are we off here? Because the reality is, I, I, th- I, I think, I know, not just in my own life, but I know, I, know with, I know with you. I know with us together as a body. I know with us just as, as people. In Jesus Christ, we have all access to joy and power and life. And the problem is that yet the second crisis or chaos happens, we end up reverting back to what we know. We see our intellect, our, our strength, our planning, our concocting. We see that as the means that's going to mediate on our behalf. We twist, man. We, we do, don't we? Somebody better say amen. Man, we twist and scheme and manipulate life to fit the narrative we want instead of submitting to the narrative that God has completed in Jesus Christ. We begin to set up our lives in such a way we put the right people around us, the the yes men around us, the right people to tell us what we want to hear, right? So that we can get certain outcomes and effectually save ourselves. This is death. For those of us in Christ, in the branch, our self-mediation is nothing more than an attempt to cut ourselves off of the branch. The very thing that can't be cut off. Now that you're in the branch, stop trying to cut yourself off because you have all access to joy and power and knowledge in him. You have it. It's like, it's like trying to take a hacksaw and cut yourself off from that because you think you know better. It's, and in Hebrew, self-mediation is reverting back. Like I love how Jay, Jay and I were actually talking about this week. He's like, he's like it's when you, uh, you're out in the middle of a storm, which I'm not because I hate nature. Um, and it tried to kill me this weekend, by the way. I had to take Benadryl. Um, <laughs> He's, he's like, he said, it's like, it's like when you're uh, out in a rainstorm and there's lightning and stuff, right? And instead of running into the house, because like, you know, when tornado weather hits, like all of us Texans, we're out there watching, right? Yeah, amen. Oh, it's awesome. But when the lightning and stuff comes, he's like, it's like running under a tree, right? Instead of running inside to safety, you're standing under a tree. Dude. That's how we think. God's like, I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you, right? We begin to fall away. There's three warning passages I want to address. There's, there's more in Hebrews, but I just want to take three today. Um, there's a way that we can fall away. And again, we talked about you cannot, if you are in the branch, you cannot lose your salvation. But there's a way that we begin to revert back to our old ways of self-mediation. And it's dangerous. It's death. It's apostasy. So warning number one is this. Sometimes we begin to fall away from this gospel. All the stuff we just talked about with priests and gospel, we begin to fall away from this truth. We begin to fall away because we drift 
from the truth of salvation. We drift when we attempt to mediate for ourselves. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, he says, pay attention that Jesus is the new mediator. This paying attention is the very thing. If you look back at Zechariah 1.4, if you look at Hebrews 7.11, what does he say? They did not pay attention. Pay attention. We're falling away because you are continue to try to mediate for yourself. In uh, Zechariah 2.10, he says, he is the founder of our salvation. He's the founder of your salvation, of our salvation. He makes Christ suffer and Christ sanctifies us being the source of sanctification. And if you guys, have you ever thought about like what gives Satan his power? This is not yin yang, right? It's sin. It's sin. And what Christ does on the cross is he breaks the very thing that fuels Satan. It's broke. It's, It's broken. Christ's death breaks that power that fuels him. He is the high priest in 2.17 and 18, he's the high priest who is the propitiation for our sins. When we start feeling dirty and we start feeling filthy, this is what we do. We start mediating for ourselves. And you fall away. You start reverting back instead of having access to all joy and power. You revert back when you fall away, when you forget what makes for right standing in God's eyes. And the way self-mediation works, this is warning number two, falling away happens most often and most clearly in suffering. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13, let's read that together. He says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We've come to share in Christ if we hold to our original confidence firm. Disobedience in the writer's mind of Hebrews is equivalent with unbelief. He said it's an unbelieving heart. It's not a believing heart. It's falling away. It's an unbelieving heart, right? We have these, all these different kinds of common ways we run into to suffering. We suffer, like, like, think about it with me. You suffer, some, some of you suffer when you're at work. The, that dude that sits next to you, the boss you have, the type of work you're in. You're suff, you begin to suffer. You're like, why do I even do this? Why am I doing this? Why do I work for that guy? Why do I put up with this? And it's not long before you start looking up new jobs, right? Simple. You start looking up new jobs, training, etc. You're gonna start. You're gonna start fixing you. You're gonna start making you a little better. You didn't pray. You didn't seek counsel. You didn't get with your people here. These are your people. These are we're our people. We didn't get together and start praying ferociously over right over what my next step's gonna be. We started self. We started self mediating. What the next thing? I'm not saying looking at jobs is bad, but, but the heart behind it, if I got to fix all of my world, so what? I, I can make my narrative keep going. And this, this is for some of you. I, I don't know who's, who it is in here, but I, I, I mean, man, we were talking about this this week and it just pressed me hard. Suffering in silence. I don't know if it's like divorce, relationship issues. Maybe you're sick with something um, depressed, anxious, 
self-hate, maybe suicide has crossed your mind. What are you not sharing with your neighbor? With your, don't share with your neighbor because my neighbors are weirdos. Um, and then here, who are you not sharing with that you need to share with? When you suffer in silence, you start typically trying to do it all by yourself so no one else will know. And you begin to cut off avenues of godly community that God gifts us with. I want to be sensitive, but man, I want to be straight. Like, that, this is unbelief. You stopped believing the gospel. Jesus already suffered in silence for you. He did it alone. His people denied him. They scattered. He was forsaken to taste death. You are not called to suffer alone. He's already done it for you. So you walking in obedience and belief in him through your suffering brings glory to God. And when you try to suffer alone, you're not only robbing yourself of that access to joy and power and peace, you're robbing God of the glory he's going to do in you and through you because you're suffering. Warning number three, we, f- we fall into failure, we fall away because of a failure to grow up in maturity. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14 We should have our powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. We fall away when we choose to remain infants. We fall away when we do not train ourselves to discern what is truly godly for our lives. Like, and he uses infant imagery. Infants are not like remotely discerning or proactive, right? Some of you guys know that. You got little babies in here. They react to everything with little or no thought other than the how they feel in the moment, right? Right? You got to play with me. All right. All right. Just make sure. Sometimes, and here's the deal. Like, sometimes we think babies are cute because of their ignorance, right? So don't judge me on this. Um, when Tracy and I first had Luke, and it was like however many years ago it was. I don't know how old my kids are. Um, we did this thing. Some of you have done it too, so don't judge me. Uh, where he was like, he was a baby that could sit up. He wasn't a newborn baby, but he was a baby that could sit up. And we thought it would be hilarious and hysterical to take a, a warhead, those sour warheads, and be like, you want to you lick that? And he's like, yeah, you know, because he doesn't talk or anything. And he licks it, and he just makes this face. And we're just like, ah, that's awesome. That's so cool, you know? And um, <laughs> you see, that's all the judgment coming out right now. And it's, <laughs> and it's so cute because they're so dumb. Um. But when you use that imagery with us, it's not cute to remain ignorant, right? It's not cute to remain the spiritual equivalent of being a 20, 30, 40, 50-year-old living in our mama's basement. Our ability to be able to handle the knowledge of good and evil was obliterated in our disobedience in Adam, right? Jesus died that we might not sit as infants just reacting to everything. We are to grow up discerning what is good in God's eyes, you begin to see your life not through your own immature, finite eyes, but with spiritual eyes, redemptive eyes, constantly practicing choosing God's definitions of good in your life over your own. 
It means your life decisions and the way you come to those decisions are based on an ever-maturing sight gifted to you by the Spirit through Christ. And in 5.12, if you read it, he says this, some of you ought to be teachers by now. Some of you ought to be feeding other people, but you are still wholly dependent on and worried about getting fed. Don't fall away. Don't revert back. You have all joy. You have access to all power. You have it all. You have it all. Stop mediating for yourself. Our worship leaders are going to be coming up. Our, uh, we're going to be taking this meal here together here in just a minute. Church, we need a new normal. And I mean that individually. I mean that as a body. We need a new normal. We have been gifted with a new normal in Jesus Christ. You can take the worst. And he loves it. He loves you. Cares for you. He has given everything to bring you into himself. In a few weeks, we're headed to Easter, right? This priest is making atonement. He has made atonement. We are celebrating the one who stands and represents us. To a people that feels filthy and dirty and done, this is good news. Right now, I just ask everybody, we're going to pray together before we, as we close our time together. I just want to ask you, do you feel that today? Do you feel like dirty and filthy? Maybe you've been disobedient. Maybe you're trying to set up your life in such a way to mediate for yourself when he's already done it. Where are you telling yourself that this is the new normal? Where are you suffering? And instead of running into all joy and power and peace, you're trying to cut yourself off. Where are you suffering in silence? And today you need to open up. Before you leave this place, before you leave this building, you need to open up. And you need to tell somebody. You need to pray with somebody. Today needs to be a changing day for you. Where are you trying to fix you? And where can you come open-handed and say, Jesus, you are the mediator for me. Just come open-handed before him and say, I I got nothing. If you are in him, you have access to all joy, to all power.
to all peace. We're going to have people up here ready to pray with you. I'll be up here. If you need to talk, you need to pray. Today is your day. Let him do it.